Well, I'd like to begin by welcoming all of our Atlanta area churches, as well as all of our partner churches in the Irresistible Church Network uh, who are joining with us. And those of you who join us across the country and around the world week to week, uh, we're thrilled to have you. And if you've never been to one of our, our local church gatherings, in, in-person gathering, we'd love for you to join us at one, at one time at one of our partner churches, or if you live here in the Atlanta area, uh, we'd love to meet you. And we'd love to find out how we can better serve you as a church. Uh, not long ago, uh, I was out with a group of friends, and we were having dinner one night, and at the location we were having dinner, we were sitting on a patio, and there was a cover band that was playing music, which uh, can go one of two ways if you've ever been out listening to music, but this cover band was pretty decent, and they began playing a song, and as soon as they heard it, I knew exactly what it was. If you're a U2 fan, you would know exactly what this song was, because they began playing Where the Streets Have No Name, which starts with this six-note arpeggio, which makes me sound like I know a lot more about music than I really do, but it's these six notes played by Edge, the guitar, that when you hear them, you're like, you know exactly what song it is. And um, so they start playing the song, and the guitar player was, was doing pretty well, and he was rocking into this song, this iconic start, and then the whole band comes in, and the lead singer begins singing, and they butcher the rest of the song. I mean, it's a disaster. In fact, I at one point felt a moral obligation to walk up and stop the band and be like, no, 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 no. You cannot do this to this song. And luckily I had some people there that talked me out of that and rescued me from that. Um, But I wanted to be like, because I had just told somebody, this is the greatest song of all time. One of the greatest songs of all time. And just a second later, he's like, this is one of the greatest songs of all time. And I'm like, yeah, but it's a disaster. It's an awful representation of it. Sadly, The reason I bring that up today is this same dynamic exists in the church and within Christianity. And um, I'll just give a quick disclaimer today. This could be a little uncomfortable for those of us who consider ourselves church people. But here's what we know, that because of a lot of people out there who are performing uh, awful representations, awful cover versions of what it is to be a Jesus follower. Um, There's many people who've been turned off. There's many people who resist. There's many people who aren't interested in in joining uh, in our faith. Uh, I recently was having a conversation with a guy in his young 20s, and I was trying to convince him that our church was different than other churches he experienced, and I'd love for him to come to our church. I want to introduce him to some people. We have this great 20s gathering, and I, I would love for him to come. And, and, um, and, and here's, here's what he said to me. And he, I didn't know how to respond. He said, hey, here's my hangout with church. My church friends judge me for identifying as gay while they're living with their girlfriends. Just out with it, just like that. And I'm the pastor, and I'm going, I don't know what to say to that. I don't know how to respond to that. And some of you, you've had similar experiences where you talk to somebody and some of you are here and you're going, yikes, this is the deep end. It's a little early in the sermon, but I can assure you we've locked the doors and you can't get out today. So it's going to be all right. Um, If you're online, don't tune me out yet. It's going to be fine. Here's the thing. It turns out he's not alone. In fact, in a a very recent study uh, done uh, basically surveying people who were not Christian people, only 3% of non-Christian people, primarily in the millennial and, and Gen X generations, only 3% have a favorable view of Christians. In fact, 87% of them said that the Christians they knew were judgmental. And 85% of them said that they're hypocritical. And 78% said they were old-fashioned. And 75% said they were too political. And these were the primary uh, perspectives of what people thought of when they thought of Christians. Now, here's the thing I want to say up front. Surprisingly, 
while this presents some significant challenges, having a favorable view of Christians, especially if you're somebody who's here and, and maybe you're giving church a try again or you're joining us online and you're, you're giving Christianity another shot, um, a, a favorable view of Christians is not one of the fundamentals of Christianity. And, and we should all say amen to that. Nobody did last service or this service, but we should all say amen to that because none of us are our perfect representation. Today, we're continuing our series called The Fundamental List, sort of recovering the essentials of our faith. And the question we've been trying to answer is, what must one believe to be a faithful follower of Jesus? We talk a lot about following and how to follow. We're, we're, we're a church that talks very practically about what it is to be a follower of Jesus. But what do you have to believe? Like, what are the, what are the essential, the core essentials of our faith? Because, as we've said, we've said when the non-essentials characterize or, or they become central or they define the church or Christianity, thoughtful people like yourselves, maybe like some of you who are maybe watching us or tuning in online today, um, you step away. At least you feel the need to deconstruct, which is a very popular thing in our world right now. Lots of people are deconstructing when it comes to their faith, and maybe that's you. You've said something was off, and in your church experience or your experience with Christians, the tone or posture or approach of them towards you or towards somebody else you know and love, while it was deemed as Christian, it seemed very unchristlike. And I'll just tell you, in terms of deconstructing, there's nothing wrong with this unless we fail to reconstruct, which is why we're doing this series. Because belief is like a vacuum. Vacuums don't remain vacuums. When something's taken out of it, something else automatically fills in and, and substitutes in its place. It fills the space of the things that we've removed. And there are some things we need to leave behind. There are some things we need to get rid of. But there's some things we need to replace those with. There's some core essentials. So we're asking the question, what is fundamental? Like if we have to strip it all away, what are the fundamental things you need to believe in order to be a follower of Jesus? What's essential and what's foundational? So far, uh, we started week one with this, this fair, first fundamental that we said is, is sort of the one that all the others derive from. All the others are is sort of a reference point for all the others. Jesus is God's son and our king. And Jesus came into the world. We're going to revisit this a little bit today, but he came to show us what God's like. In fact, Jesus, our second one, is he came and to illustrate and to demonstrate what God's like. So if you want to know what God's like, you don't even need to look at Christians. You don't need to look at the world. You don't need to look at the church. I mean, it would be nice if it was a, a good representation, but if you're somebody who's resisted church and you've resisted Christianity, the truth is, Jesus said, if you want to know what the Father's like, if you want to know what God's like, if you want to know how God sees you, if you want to know what God's love is like, you watch how I love and how I lead my life and how I live my life. Because Jesus came to illustrate and demonstrate what the Father was like. And he talked a lot about sin and leaving li our lives of sin, walking away from sin. And Jesus defines sin. This is our third on the fundamentalist. He defines sin as anything that harms you or harm somebody around you. And the reason is, is because God is love and God loves you and he doesn't want you to harm yourself and he doesn't want you to harm other people around you. And he promised that one day he's gonna set everything right. There will be a final judgment. And Jesus, number four, Jesus promised justice in the end. And he invites us to trust him when things aren't right in the meantime, when things don't seem like they're going the right way in the world, when we feel like somebody's gotta do something about this, Jesus says, I'm planning to. But because of my mercy, I'm going to delay my judgment. And in delaying his judgment, Jesus, as we talked about last time, Jesus died for my sin and for your sin to reconcile us to God. He delayed his judgment 
The, 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 the righteous judgment that, ne- that necessitated a payment for the penalty of our sin. And not only his mercy did he delay that judgment, he willingly took on the penalty himself and his grace and he paid the payment for us. So if, if you're new, if you're new to church or you're just checking us out or you have a bad taste in your mouth about Christianity, about church, here's something you, want, you need to know. As it turns out, faith in Christians is non-essential for following Jesus. It's non-essential. However, the reason I bring it up today is a lack of faith in Christians is almost universal for non-followers. It matters. It makes, a, it makes a difference. Now, we wouldn't blame a songwriter for someone butchering their song, but sadly, that's often what happens with Christianity. You've seen it. You have friends. For some of you, you've experienced this, and it's not something that's new. Uh, Gandhi, who was a, a student of Christ, he actually quoted Christ a lot when he was interviewed and he was asked why he wouldn't convert to being a follower of Jesus. This is, was his response. He said, oh, I don't reject your Christ. I love your Christ. It's just that so many of your Christians are so unlike your Christ. So we're going to talk about it today. It's going to be a little uncomfortable. I promise it'll be okay, but I want to talk about how did we get here? Why are we where we are? And what could be, what should be done about it to transform maybe some people around us, some people in our community, maybe some people around the world, their view of what Christ is like as they look at the church and they look at Christians. Along the way, we're going to discover our next fundamental belief. Um, And in order to get there, I want to go back to this number one. Uh, In week one, we said that this fundamental, Jesus is God's son and our king, is the reference point for all the rest. And the reason I bring us back to it today is because we're going to go back to the very same passage that we unpacked in that first week. And um, it was in Matthew chapter 16. If you have a Bible and you want to open up to it or you have a device, I'd love for you to follow along. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is asking a question of his closest followers. And it's sort of a leading question, but it's a bit cryptic to start. And the question he asks is, who do you believe the Son of Man is? And the Son of Man, they would have been familiar with this title. The Son of Man was a, was a, a title that came out of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, as to who has the ultimate authority is what Jesus is asking. Who, who, who has God set up as the ultimate authority in the world? And some of them replied, you know, some people think it's Elijah, and other people think it's John the Baptist, and some people think it was Jeremiah, and others believe it was one of the other prophets. And then Jesus turned to them, and he said, okay, wait, forget everybody else. What about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? As if to say, okay, we were talking about the son of man and this title, this ultimate authority. And, and I want to kind of connect this because I want to know, do you think I'm him? Do you, do you think that's who I am? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, he's ready, fire, aim. If you know anything about Simon Peter, he answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And he actually got it right this time. And it's like, it's like hey, we, I know who you are. I feel completely confident and, and I'm, I'm, willing to just, I'm willing to just go public with this. And this is the first time anybody had declared who Jesus came to represent. He came to represent God as God's son and our king, our final king. And, and this is the only thing, as we said, that the church has consistently agreed upon in 2,000 years, is that Jesus was God's son, and he is our king. He's our final king. He's the one we're to surrender to and live our lives according to the way he said he should live our lives. Jesus replied to him, though. He said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Basically saying, hey, this is an eternal truth. This isn't just logic. This isn't just because of what you saw. This is something that was revealed to you, and it's really, really important. In fact, it's foundationally important. 
And we stopped here the first, the first week, but the, what comes after this is absolutely critical to understanding our next essential. He actually first um, refers to Peter as Simon, Simon, son of Jonah, when Jesus refers to him. And this is the way it's recorded for us. He says, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you uh, by flesh and blood, but my father in heaven. And I tell you, he goes on, he says, I tell you that you are Peter, which this was actually, if you go back in the gospels, this was a nickname that Jesus gave to Peter when, or to Simon when he first met him. And, and the word Peter means, or the name Peter means, pet, it's Petros in, in, uh, in the Greek, and it means rock. And he says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, not you, Peter, but on this rock, I will build my ecclesia, my gathering, or my church. So what is the rock? Here's the rock. This is a wordplay. He's using Simon's, this nickname he's given Simon, and he says, hey, look, your name is Petros, and like your name, I'm going to build my church on this rock, the rock being the declaration of faith that you just made, the fundamental and foundational nature of your declaration of faith in me as the ultimate authority, as your Savior, on this rock, on this sort of faith in me as your ultimate authority, Jesus says. I will build my gathering of followers. And that's how it happened. Now, this is important because we've gotten this wrong before in our history. And some people misunderstand. Jesus didn't replace himself with a person. He could have. He could have decided. And some people take this to mean, oh, Jesus was passing the baton to Peter. But that's not what he did. He made it really clear that I'm passing my baton to a gathering of faith. A, a group of people that will join together, characterized and sur surrounding or, or with at the central essential belief of faith in me as their ultimate authority. And the Apostle Paul, we know this is true because multiple, multiple places, the Apostle Paul clarified this. In fact, in one place, he clarified it with a metaphor. Using a metaphor, people would understand. He said this, the human body, using the body as a metaphor, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. And so it is with the body of Christ. He, he's basically saying, look, the body of Christ has many parts. And he points out that in, that in the same way, it's unnatural and dysfunctional for the human body to be dismembered. I skipped those verses. You're welcome because they're a little gross. In the same way that that's the case, the same is true of the body of Christ. And he, his sort of landing or summary statement is this. He says, look, all of you together, not, not on your own and not separate, all of you together, gathered together, are Christ's body. And each of you is a part of it. All of you together, the gathering of Christ, you're what's going to represent Christ. Christ passed his baton not to an individual. He passed his baton to a body of believers who exhibit faith by saying, you're the ultimate authority and I'm gonna surrender my life to you, not each of us on our own, again, but a collection of people who are gathering together to represent Jesus. This was his plan A for how he was going to build his church. This was his plan A for how he was gonna move the movement forward. This was his plan A for how people would experience him and experience his life. In his book, Connecting, Larry Krabs, one of the best books I've read on the, the value of, of the gathering of the local church. And in his book, Connecting, Larry Krabs says this, why this is so critically important. He says this, he said, the absolute center of what he, God, does to help us change is to reveal himself to us, to give us a taste of what he's really like and to pour his life into us. And a critical element in the revealing process is to place us in a community of people who are enough like him to give us that taste firsthand. The gathering 
Showing up with one another, showing up for one another is how we encounter Jesus. The reason is, is because the church, fundamental number six, the church is God's agent of transformation, personally, culturally, and globally. The church is how we experience Jesus. And when we experience Jesus in the body, when the body gathers together, because the body gathering together is the representation of Jesus. Remember, that's who he passed the baton to. And so when we gather in the body, we experience the transformational power of Jesus and we are transformed personally. And as we become more like Jesus and as we're transformed in the community of the body of Christ, we become agents of cultural and global change in the world around us. It's the way Jesus designed it to work. However, as some of you know, in our world, the gathering is swimming upstream a bit. In fact, in more ways than one, and the current's getting stronger. We're now deep into what's known as the information age in our world. And some of you are are more students of culture than I am, but just just a a quick broad uh, sweep. I mean, the information age uh, is characterized, started around the mid 20th century, is characterized primarily uh, by technological advancements in our world and, and in our societies. And these technological advancements have revolutionized efficiency. They've transformed connection in our world and they've fostered individualization. And, and all of these can be positive things. And it's done all of these for things for better and for worse. And while many of these advancements, you, you experience the improvement uh, personally, the way you're able to get more done uh, in less time, the way you're able to stay more connected with more people, the way people are, are, are actually able to succeed and launch and develop more uh, businesses on their own, entrepreneurship is at its highest rate in history. I mean, all of these things are positive things. And while many of these have improved our world, they also have some unintended consequences. And we're just beginning to understand what some of those are. And we don't realize what it is uh, when we make something else king. And this has seeped into the church gathering as well. You see, instead of Jesus and the gathering and experiencing Jesus in the body being king, information in our society has become king. And when information is king, isolation is not far behind. And we saw this We've seen this. You've experienced this. Some of you know. Some of you, you've seen this in your kids. Gen Z is statistically, you can do your own research, statistically the most highly connected and yet also the loneliest generation in history. The most highly connected, yet also the the most lonely generation in history. Social media and YouTube and online gaming, it connects people and informs people in unprecedented ways. But it isolates people in unprecedented ways as well. And and we've seen this. We've seen this throughout our world and we're just beginning to experience the effects of it in our world. But there's a second significant casualty and it's not as documented. It's not as much talked about. It hasn't been as much research. But when information is king, isolation uh, is not only far behind, but incarnation gets left behind. Now, incarnation might be a a new word for some of you. Incarnation really just means embodied in or taking on flesh. And it's usually attributed to Jesus. Jesus took on, was God, he came and he, the incarnation of God was when Jesus came and he took on flesh in human form. It was God's way of saying, I'm not some far off, impersonal, cosmic dictator that's, that's ruling the world or regulating the world without personal concern for your lives. God came to be with us. In fact, Jesus came to be with us. Emmanuel, this is what we celebrate at Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. 
God came to relate and restore and to reconcile and to redeem. And if the physical presence of God wasn't important, come on, Jesus would have stayed in heaven. Why would he have come? Why did he need to come? Why would an all-powerful God just not do it some other way? It's because incarnation is important, but it's getting left behind. And Jesus, when he left the earth, he passed the baton to you and to me. And he sent his spirit to empower us collectively, not just individually, but collectively to be his representation, to be his agent of transformation for each other in each other's lives as we speak truth and we encourage and we challenge and we build up one another, but also his agent of transformation culturally, globally. In in this age in history, the gathering of the local church, the body of Christ, is the incarnation of God. And we don't realize how significant, how important that is. But there's been this recent cultural shift, not just uh, outside the church, but within the church. And many view the gathering or the attending or the gatherings of the church as non-essential. And and come on, let's just be honest for a minute. I'm just going to push you just a second. Many of us, if you look at our behavior and our activity, many of us view the gathering or attending the gathering, gathering with other believers. We view it, or at least our actions seem to proclaim it as non-essential. Now, this isn't something new. This, this began over a decade ago, but it was accelerated during COVID. In fact, some of you remember, you remember this probably all too well. You're like, I'm trying to forget. But, but during COVID, um, all non-essential services shut down. Remember this? So, so only essential services kept, kept going and were gathering, and, and the church stopped gathering in person. And now we know we didn't stop gathering. We continued to gather online, but that wasn't the perception of many outside and inside the church. It's like, oh, this isn't essential. And there was fallout from that. It accelerated something that was already beginning. In fact, the Barna Group did a, a study on the state of the church, and, and they, they did a study that, that uh, looked at trends over ten, a 10-year period. This, this study was done right near the end of 2020. And they were looking at the period from 2010 to 2020 in America. And they discovered that practicing Christians... Christians that attended church and read their Bible and were in Bible study and that were in groups that were active in their faith. They were actively gathering. They were actively a part of a a local church. Practicing Christians dropped from 47% in 2010 to 25% in 2020, almost in half. And at the same, in the same period, non-practicing Christians rose from 33% to 43%. And during the same period, uh, non-Christians, people who said they don't affiliate with faith, they shifted from 20% to 32%. I I don't have to leave the chart up long for you to realize things are not trending in the right direction. And by no coincidence, it has to do with people practicing and gathering in the local church. Do you know that for the first time in American history, like other traditions, like the Catholic or Jewish tradition, the first time in American history, non-practicing Christians is greater. In fact, significantly greater than practicing Christians. So after decades of Christians disconnected, if you will, as Paul talked about it, dismembered from the body, not encountering the transformational power of the incarnation of Jesus as people gather together in the local church. After a decade of that, here's where we are. This is how people see Christianity. This is how people see the church. 
And it's by no coincidence that this has trended with people's view of the church being non-essential. So, so the question we're asking is, is, is the church essential? Is it essential? I mean, here, here's the thing. Is, it, is the gathering of the church, is the people attending church, is you showing up where, at, a, at a local body and interacting with other believers, is that essential? And how essential is it? I would tell you, because of the way things are trending, it's more essential than ever. And we can't have too many of these churches. In fact, if you're a part of one of our Atlanta area churches and you give to our church, you don't need to, you need to know we're not only trying to make, help our church succeed more and help our church be built up and reinforced and investing people in our local communities. We're investing in other churches. We're trying to help other churches start. We're trying to build up other churches. And part of what you give helps us do that, not just across the country and around the world. Even in our local city, we've been investing in local churches because we think it's more essential than ever, ever. And you didn't know this, but you're helping us. And here's what we know, that the church is never going to be perfect. Not all these churches we invest in, our churches won't be imperfect. We're not going to be perfect. And you know why? Because you're here. That's why. And I'm here. And we're not perfect. But that's not the goal. The goal is not to be perfect. The, the goal is to, 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 be, to be continuing to be progressively challenging each other to, to move forward in our lives and following Jesus, to build each other up, to challenge one another. And, and we do that as we gather together. That's where we experience the transformational power of Jesus. Is church essential? Of course it is. But the next logical question is, with so many people having such an unfavorable view of the church, is the church salvageable? I mean, it, it seems like it's, it's, in America, the perception of the church of Christianity is descending so significantly that, that this is a legitimate question. And honestly, I don't have a really good answer to it. So I'm going to let Jesus answer the question. Here's what Jesus said when he said to Peter, look, I'm telling you, Peter, on this rock, your confession, this foundational fundamental confession that I'm the authority and people uh, are, are choosing to submit their life to me on that sort of faith, I'm going to build my church. And here's the thing I want you to know, on that foundation, I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades are not going to overcome it. This is Jesus basically going, look, come hell or high water, with the same power that raised me from the dead, I'm going to make my church move forward. And against all odds, in the hellish uh, uh, sort of position and, and cultural conditions of the first century, it happened. It started amongst the Jewish people, and it, and it spread to the Greeks and the Romans. It transformed. It actually toppled and transformed the Roman Empire. It swept across Europe, and it shaped the West. It shaped the culture in which we live in now. And it happened as those people who claimed faith in Jesus, as they gathered, as they continued to show up for one another and show up in their communities and show up for people around them, expressing the love of Jesus. Showing up was a core essential in the first church, amongst the first believers. In fact, that's why the writer of Hebrews, he encouraged them. He said, look, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. I love this word. Don't get off course. Don't veer off course. You need to hold unswervingly, hold steadfast to the direction that we're going, to the hope we profess, keeping, keeping focused on that. For he who promised, being Jesus, is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up. This is how you, you don't swerve. You be unswervingly. This is how. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing 
but encouraging one another. The habit of meeting together. It was a central practice. It was maybe the most important practice of the early Jesus followers. It was not optional. It was not peripheral. It was essential. They saw the gathering of God's people as God's primary vehicle for building up the body and reaching out to people who were outside the body. So I just want to push you a little bit today. Look, if you've gotten out of the habit of meeting together, it's time to change that habit. This is, this is me. Paul's word, or the, the writer of Hebrews' word is not mine, probably Paul. He, this is me encouraging you. This is me encouraging you that the gathering is essential. It's essential to you experiencing the transformation of God, to you experiencing what God wants you to do in, what he wants to do in your life. It's essential. If you're joining us online, I I don't want you to feel any guilt. This isn't me like shaming you. I'm just saying there's an opportunity. There's an invitation. I, I I don't need anything from you, but I want something for you. And the reality is, is gathering with the local church is how God's transformational power gets unlocked in your life and in our communities, and the world around us. That's why our mission as a church, our mission is to inspire people to follow Jesus by engaging them in the life and the mission of the local church. We believe the local church is God's transformational vehicle, God's, God's hope for the world. It's how he's delivering his hope to the world. Engagement in the body of Christ is God's special agent, if you will. It's his God's special agent of transformation for those within the body, for our next door neighbors, and for the next generation. It's how he's delivering life and hope and meaning to the world around us. This last year um, at our sixth grade camp, if this was just for our Atlanta area churches, uh, we had 1,133 sixth graders go to camp. Isn't that unbelievable? It's crazy. That was a half-hearted clap. Some of you are thinking, that sounds like my own personal hell. 1,133 sixth graders in one place, but it's amazing. Amazing camp, uh, a bunch of kids showing up. And um, as you can imagine, it's hard to get enough uh, leaders and chaperones and all the people you need to make something like that happen. Our team's amazing. But, you know, some schedules don't line up. We don't have leaders that can go sometimes. So we try to recruit some other people to come in and help us and show up and, 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 and kind of get in the middle of that and substitute for other leaders. And we actually had this crazy thing happen at one of our campuses. Uh, one of our leaders, their car caught on fire, like literally on their way to go to camp. And so we, in last minute, we had another leader that we had gotten involved and they weren't going to be leading a group. And so we got this leader who had been a, actually a high school leader. Um, who'd been familiar with our student ministry, background check, all the responsible things, knew what they were doing, and, and they said that they'd be willing to show up for the weekend. They had time, they'd show up for the weekend and serve with this group and lead the group for the leader who wasn't going to be able to go. And he got connected with this group, and immediately he, he realized, like, most of the group was connected, but there was this one student that was sort of absent and distant from the group and not really connecting with what was going on. And he just decided to show up and play his part. And he began to connect with this student in, in concert with a lot of other people that were playing their parts, speakers that were there this weekend and coaches and people that were doing activities for the kids and making it fun and people who are doing security to make sure everybody's safe and in the right places and, and staff that are overseeing operations and all these different people that are playing their part. They're showing up because this is the gathering. It's just sixth graders, but it's the gathering of the church for their age, age appropriate, where God, we expect God to show up and work in their lives. And this leader, who wasn't even supposed to be there, 
showed up and he began to connect with the student. And the student, over the course of the weekend, began to confide in him something he had never confided in anybody else. Not any of his friends, not his actual leader, not his parents. He began to confess that he was in a really dark place personally and he was having some serious suicidal thoughts. And over the course of a lot of discussions, this leader began to help this student experience Jesus in this place, at this camp, in this environment. Again, alongside lots of other people, he couldn't have done it by himself. But this student had a transformational experience with Jesus. And he began to find hope. And this leader continued to walk with him after the camp. And and he found help. And he found healing. Let me ask you, where else can that happen? That only happens in the local church. It happens best in the local church. The transit report from sixth grade camp, it looked like this. 1,133 students attended camp. 300 plus students made a decision to give their life to Christ. They were saved spiritually. And one student... One student was saved physically. That's good. Thanks for helping me with that moment. Let me ask you, is the church essential? Come on. Let, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Ask this student right here. Ask his mom. The church essential? Oh, yeah. When we show up, when you show up for each other, for each other's families, when you show up and just, even when you don't know what your part is, Scripture says you're a part of the body. When you show up, it matters. When you show up, you fulfill your role as part of the body. God uses other people in the body to spur one another on, to encourage one another, to love one another, to care for one another, to build one another up when we can't do it on our own. He knew we would need each other and so he didn't leave it up to one person. He passed the baton to a gathering because active gatherings of believers activate God's transformational power in our world and miraculous things happen in our lives and the lives of those around us. When we gather and each one plays our part, marriages are transformed. God, through his spirit, restores families. Hearts are mended. Addictions are broken. Purpose is realized. Lives are rescued forever, forever. Choosing to show up and engage in the life and mission of the church can make all the difference for you and for somebody else around you. It has made all the difference for so many and it will continue to make all the difference in our lives and the lives of those around us because, because the church, this is fundamental. The church is God's agent of transformation personally, culturally, and globally. So, come on, let's make it a habit. Let's make it a habit of showing up for each other on Sundays, but not just on Sundays on Monday through Saturday, throughout the week in homes, 
and on Sunday afternoons with students. Let's make it a habit of continuing to show up for our next door neighbors and the next generation. Let's show up for each other. And I believe each of us will experience the transformation that God has for us. And maybe, just maybe, people's view of Christians, at least in our communities, will be transformed as well. Let me pray for you. God, I don't have any eloquent words to conclude today just to say, help us. Help us to not be crushed by the weight of responsibility you've given to us, but to be inspired by it. To be inspired to realize that this is our moment. This is the most, as, as people who bear your name, as Jesus followers, as Christians, this is our moment. Help us to seize our moment. Help us to realize that this is the most important thing that all of us carry, not just the staff, not just our senior pastor, not some people that stand on a stage, not people that, that do this professionally. This, as Christians, as followers of yours, gathering together in all forms is what it looks like for us to experience you and for the world around us to experience you. So help us to know, each one of us, what that looks like. God, I pray for people who've been hurt by church gatherings. They've been hurt by other Christians. God, I pray that you would help our gathering. You would help the gatherings that are joining with us today to be some sort of healing agent toward those people, that they would experience your life and your hope and your mercy and your grace as we continue to gather, as we do what people have been doing for 2,000 years as we make it a habit of meeting together so that we can be transformed into people that look like you. I pray in Jesus' name.